Welcome to the Shifting Our Schools podcast, where we believe learning never stops. We create innovative and flexible professional development opportunities that support the current research and thinking in education today. This week's podcast episode aspires to set you up to take another step forward on your personal learning journey. Now, here's your host, Jeff Udick. All right, welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. Trisha and I just got done talking with an incredible guest, Tiffany. Uh, I'm going to let Trisha tell you a little bit more about our guest, and then we're going to be talking about uh, this episode, uh, giving you a little bit of background before we get into our interview. Trisha, how, how's it? How is it up in Canada, by the way? Middle of summer as we're recording this. You know, Ottawa will shock you. It's super warm here, Jeff. So, um, you know, if you are looking to beat the heat wherever you are, we hope that this podcast finds you in air conditioning with a nice glass of lemonade. Today's guest, Tiffany Bova, if you are a regular reader of Forbes, uh, that's how I first came across Tiffany Bova. She talks a lot about employee and customer experience. She'll talk about that in this episode, too. Um, and again, we're doing this special series looking at the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, those of us who are nurturing tomorrow's business leaders, we wanted to give you some of the thought leaders in the field to talk to you about their experience. And what Tiffany shares about employee experience, I think resonates with what teachers try to do in the classroom, right? Trying to make sure that they are fostering psychological safety, that they have a classroom environment where everybody really feels and understands that their ideas are welcomed and are wanted. And I think the other thing that I really appreciated about the podcast is, you know, one of the things we work on all the time as teachers is meeting students where they're at and that, and how that transitions into the business world, you know, as, as someone who is helping entrepreneurs, Tiffany is talking about how she is constantly trying to figure out and meet entrepreneurs where they're at. And there's so many crossovers, I think, between the work that she does with entrepreneurs and the work that teachers do with students that I found myself as an educator like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. Like I'm having the right conversations. I'm focusing on the the right things. Uh, we talk a little bit about soft skills, which I know, Trisha, you and I keep talking about like aren't soft skills. These are literally the skills. And she talks about those, right? She talks about like, these are the skills uh, and you hear those come through, like you'll, you'll hear those in the podcast. So be listening for that. Like, when does she mention these things that we really need to be focusing on in our classrooms and, and really have what our classrooms are about? Absolutely. So you can learn more about Tiffany Bova over there in the show notes. She hosts her own podcast uh, that's also had some extraordinary guests, but I really appreciated how time and time again, she came back to how important it is to be a skillful listener. So check that out in this conversation too. All right. So here it is, our interview with Tiffany Bova. And with that, on with the show. Okay. We are so excited to have Tiffany Bova on the podcast today. I'm going to quote from her bio. Uh, and again, you'll be able to learn much more about her on her gorgeous website. I, I do need to say sort of kudos, kudos for that. Jeff and I love looking at different websites and, and yours is just simply stunning. We loved the design of it. So your bio in part reads, Tiffany Bova is the global growth evangelist at Salesforce and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business. Bova has been named to the latest Thinkers 50s list of the world's top management thinkers and has been a welcome guest on Bloomberg, BNN, Cheddar, MSNBC, and Yahoo Finance, amongst many, many others. Tiffany, looking back on your formative years, we're really curious to hear from you in, in terms of where your spark for leadership in your field, and maybe I should say fields, because you <laughs> cross over into a lot of different sectors, um, where that spark might have originated. Well, yeah, well, thank you for having me. Let me start there. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. Uh, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said for. Um, what you do as a kid and sort of where you find those sparks as a kid, you know, like, are you curious about things? Are you encouraged to be curious about things? 
Um, do you try things even if you know you're terrible at it <laughs> as a kid? Do you keep doing it even though you know you're terrible at it because you have fun and you, your friends are there? Like, I think those lessons all sort of carry through uh, your adult life. And, and I think as you get older and you're a little bit more reflective on those kinds of questions, uh, or you get asked those questions, really, that you start to tie back to those things you did as a kid. So I was an athlete. Um, I was really, really good at sports. I was not very good at school. So that is where I sort of, you know, found my joy and my fun and got my competitive spirit. But the spark for uh, always trying to strive to be better, um, that came absolutely from athletics. How about oh, the leadership that's... side of things too? Would like, were you a leader in athletic sports or do you just find like, cause I, I think we see a lot of parallels between students who were in athletics and this idea of like leadership team playing, uh, after school as well. Do, do you kind of see some of that as well? Well, I think, I think there's two sides to that coin. I think one is being a contributor and being managed by a leader hmm. is also like having a coach. Yeah, right. In sports, you have to respect their opinion. You have to be able to take that tough love that, you know, you're not doing a good job. You know, it teaches you to have thick skin and to not try to take it personally, which as an adult is even difficult. So, you know, I would say you learn how to be led, mm. i.e. coached, right? Right. And, and then you also see what attributes of a successful coach um, you would want to emulate. Like you like the way they get, you know, you all psyched up before the game. So like, let, let's get psyched up before the quarter or, you know, at a team offsite or, you know, when something goes wrong or someone leaves the team or someone gets hurt. Well, it's like someone leaving your team to go work somewhere else, or they've gotten promoted into another role. And so, you know, all of that plays a part, but I think it's two sides being led and then being mm. a leader. And I don't think necessarily, I think this is where many people make a mistake, is just because you're a really good individual contributor doesn't mean you'll be a great leader. <laughs> and just because you're a great individual contributor doesn't mean you'll be a great teammate. <laughs> and just because, you're a, just because you're a great teammate doesn't mean you'll be a great C-suite leader teammate. Like, you know, one does not naturally mean that the other will be equally as good. <laughs> I like and, that. Uh, that. That kind of reminds me of, um, you know, looking at that from the individual perspective relates to some advice I've seen you give to businesses and corporations in terms of always thinking about building partnerships and always sort of expanding on what their team means. So I, I love how that advice is good for one person and it also might be good for um, kind of brand identity. That, that yeah. piece about being um, coachable and, and taking on feedback I wonder actually if part of what has enabled you to continue to do that, you of course host your own podcast, the What Next podcast. You've had an amazing archive of guests. Uh, you're coming up on hitting 200 episodes. You've hosted Seth Godin and Ariana Huffington, just to name a few of the names that I know listeners of this show will recognize. Is there a conversation from your catalog of episodes that um, you might point us to that you might say either, you know, has shifted your work or, you know, conversely is yet again, another example of, of the philosophy that you were just unpacking for us. So I would tell you this, the, the podcast started before the pandemic and then everybody got a podcast, but before the pandemic, <laughs> <laughs> when people were not sitting at home going, what am I going to, you know, should I do a podcast? Um, uh, was selfishly because I would have these amazing conversations with people like backstage or at an event yeah. and selfishly, they were just my conversation. And I was like, Oh, you know, I wish Steve could hear it. Right. I wish, you know, Trisha could hear it. I wish Jeff could hear it. I wish, you know, whomever it might be could have heard this. And then I'm like, ah, I need to do a podcast. Right. Um, and so it was really my way of having those super, amazing conversations and capturing them. 
because I would always learn things, but you don't want to like when you're having a conversation, sitting on a couch in a room and be like, oh, can I whip out my book and like right. take <laughs> <taking> notes? <laughs> or do you mind if I record this so I can listen to it again? Because this is really good and I'm really paying attention. So I don't want to take notes. You know, that kind of environment, especially with those that I would have the opportunity to have um, these conversations with, like Seth or Ariana, whom you mentioned. So that's where it began. So I would tell you that in every single episode, without fail, without fail, I learned something. Hmm. Without fail, I take notes while I'm listening. You know, if unless it's a live one, but if it's a uh, if it's a pre-record, um, I'm taking notes, and I then hear myself weave it into a keynote or into another interview or as a piece of advice or you know, and it just sort of pulls from the archive. So that's that's how I would answer that. Is there is not one. Um, that I have had where I, it either made me go, hmm, I never thought of it that way. And it pivoted my thinking or it validated what I was thinking or it totally contradicted what I was thinking. And then I was like, huh, you know, it's usually somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So always helpful. And I know Jeff and I have found hosting podcasts to be useful in our sector of education. We're constantly kind of nudging other educators to think about starting a podcast because as you say, it's a great pathway to learning more. And I really appreciate, you know, you mentioning that in part, it was about that generosity of wanting to share the knowledge. A few weeks back, we had Dory Clark on the show, who was very much saying the same thing, that she felt like she really wanted to make her learning transparent because as she was coming up, it wasn't all that transparent. Um, and I wonder if in part, that's what it means to be defined as a thought leader. Clearly, you are an established thought leader in your field. I'm wondering what that title means to you. Uh, we know that you have this gigantic list of clients. Can you tell us a little bit about, again, what does it mean to be a thought leader and reveal behind the curtain, what are some of the parts, you know, the behind the scenes things that you need to do in order to have gotten to that place that you are? Well, the first thing I'd say is don't ever self-proclaim yourself a thought leader. <laughs> like, I think that's not a good idea. I think initially I was like, I'm a thought leader, you know, and then, <laughs> and, and then I was put placed into a situation where I changed roles from an individual contributor executive to an advisor to mm. executives. Um, and, you know, going from the individual contributor, let's go back to what I was just saying, to an advisor was very jarring for me. I, I didn't know how to be an advisor. I knew how to be an individual contributor and then a leader of individual contributors, but not an individual contributor advisor to other companies, not the one I worked for. And by the way, other companies and the C-suite of other companies who, you know, you sort of give them terrible advice, they're not going to ask you back. Not valuable advice, they're not going to see the value in all the money they've just spent to have you there for the day. Valuable advice, you start getting invited to really incredible meetings where you're sitting at a table going, wow, I am at the you know first day of something that is going to be a billion dollar business or yeah. a two or three billion, or change the way people do X or Y. But that transition from individual contributor, people manager to an advisor um, took me about three years to find my voice, two to three years to find my voice. So I didn't know what it meant. How do you advise? What do you do? What does that mean? You know, Do I say it with authority? Even if I don't know, don't say it with authority. If you don't know, don't don't fake it till you make it. You know, I mean, it's people going fake it till you make it. And then you're like, yeah, don't fake it till you make it. Right. And then one day I realized that I started to see my advice in action. And I started to see a shift in the response to the things I was saying. And I knew I was starting to find my legs, right? Am I sort of my feet underneath me in this advisory kind of capacity? Um, where you know someone like a Dory, right? They're educators. They're that's what they do. I am not, right? That is that was not what I did. I was a sales, marketing, and service leader, right? That, that's not an educator. I mean, you could argue it is, but you get my point, right? So, making that transition, um, I I then found myself kind of year four, year five. People started to actually say those words about me, hmm. like she really has you know, some leading thinking, she's pushing the envelope on us. She always makes us think differently about 
what we're doing or what we're thinking. She challenges, you know, our mindset. She challenges, you know, uh, what we're putting forward. Now, it doesn't mean she's always right, right? But she's willing to sort of challenge and ask better questions and dig underneath and take advice that she's learned from other places and best practices. And then kind of year five, I found my superpower. And, and I think once that happened, then I felt like, oh, okay, I'm sort of now on this journey of becoming a quote unquote thought leader. That was mm. a long answer, but I don't think you wake up one day and go, <laughs> I'm a thought leader, I, right? I mean, I think you have to kind of find your way there. Well, I, I think that's really that, good. Yeah. And I think that's good advice for, you know, our, our audience being educators is we, a lot of times we have like just taking this, taking exactly what you're saying and applying it to K-12 education is a lot of times we have teachers who become instructional coaches and they were a great teacher, but a great teacher doesn't mean you're going to become a great instructional coach coaching others. Like coaching colleagues is different than teaching kids and it doesn't always translate cr- straight across and you've got to give yourself time to find your legs right you got to give yourself permission to be like i'm not going to say the right thing i'm not going to push the right way like i've got to figure out what my message is that's going to help my colleagues move along i think that's one takeaway that i'm getting from you the other one is is as a consultant myself one of the things i'm always selling school districts is if if i'm not pushing you if you're not a little bit upset at me i'm not doing my job right like my job is to push you outside your comfort zone if, if you're not questioning things when you bring in a consultant or an advisor in, if they're not making you question the way you do things, then you need to be thinking about the consultants or advisors that you're bringing in. Like that's our job. Our job is to push you to be better, push you to think different, push you to do something different. So I, I like that as a takeaway is just like that. That's your job as an advisor, as, as an instructional coach is to push people and find your way to push people that they invite you back and don't say like, forget you and out, out the door you go and you never, never get another opportunity. Right. I need, yeah, and I, I would like say that. that I had no problem on the push. That was not my problem. <laughs> my problem was not on the push. Yeah. My problem was a little bit on the tone of the push, the approach okay. of the push, you know, the push, right. So yeah. <laughs> there is a way to do that where it is sort of a more guided, uh, empathetic, compassionate, supportive push, you know, nudge, let's say nudge. Right. right? Okay. And, yeah. and, and when I over pivoted to the push, it, it never worked. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it could have also been that a majority of my clients were men and not women um, tech you know, there's a lot of things to unpack in that statement alone, right. but right, move past that. I, I I think that that also had something to do with it, but I want to take ownership of, of it as well. Sort of the self-awareness of what is it that I could be doing better and different because I know that they could use my advice. What is not connecting? What What right. is not connecting, right? And I think that that's where you have to be consistently willing to, um, hands down, become a master asker. Like you have Mm. to become a master asker of questions because that is how you get them to come to their own conclusion, whether it's students or other teachers you're coaching. Like you want to instill in them the curiosity of either one, I don't know the answer and I'm going to go find it. Or two, I never thought about it that way. Let me think about that. Let me answer and let's work through this together. Now, all of a sudden, it's not a push. It's this partnership of this sort of very, you know, piece of clay that you're molding. And with every day and with every conversation, it moves and changes and it's never static. And you want that to continue when you're not sitting in front of them, right? You want them to always feel like in the back of their mind, what would Tiffany ask me here? Or Mm. I remember when she said this. Um, I'm going to ask my team that. And, and all of a sudden they start to, um, what I like to call, uh, build your confidence muscle. It's like going to the gym, you know, you go to the gym, it's sore, it's sore, it's sore. And then you're not sore anymore and you have to add more weights and then you get sore again. Right. But you're building that confidence muscle. And with each time, with each approach, with each suggestion, with each client meeting, with each, you know, student meeting, with each, you know, colleague meeting, your confidence gets bigger, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't mean from an ego perspective. I mean, from a, is my advice worthy of sharing 
is my insight worthy of sharing? I think that's something you have to um, find your way towards. It's so refreshing to, again, hear you talk about that importance of curiosity and self-awareness um, you know, at your level, because, you know, certainly you questioning, how am I giving my advice? Is my advice worthy? For anyone who knows sort of your, your TV reels or the number of times that you've been hosted and interviewed, you know, as the source for wisdom to hear you say that you still, you know, a, a, again, really just value that, I think is really great because I think there's that difference as, as you're, you're pointing out between, there's a difference between confidence and an arrogance where we're losing perhaps that self-awareness. And we've been talking a lot about um, so-called soft skills on this show and, and how important getting that balance right is. Um, and of course, over there on your website, folks who are interested in seeing some of those interviews with you, um, you often being on the opposite end of that, being asked, you know, what's going to happen next? Tiffany, tell us, tell us what's coming next. Um, you know, you are there sharing that wisdom. We're actually going to link specifically to an episode of Unleash Results, where you're talking about the stages of organizational growth. Um, and Jeff and I are, are big believers in, uh, you know, reminding schools we are organizations too. Often we can we can steal some advice from the business world. You talk about how important the context of a market is. How has the conventional wisdom on market analysis changed in your career? Um, you know. We're finding the world of education, of course, has flipped and done cartwheels and somersaults just in the past decade. Um, but but how has your conventional wisdom sort of evolved? And if you could also just speak to what has enabled you to sort of um, continue to look and do analysis in, in perhaps a different way. Yeah. So in full transparency, when I said <clears throat> I wasn't a good student, I was not a good student. <laughs> Like, I'm not sort of, you know, being, you know, humble. <clears throat> I was not a good student. Uh, my, you know, my college counselors were like, you know, hopefully you get in somewhere sort of a thing. So, um, and then the second year of my uh, formal university college education, uh, you know, you mit sit with your college counselor and they sort of, you know, say, okay, what is your undergraduate degree? What have you decided? Like, you go through that whole conversation. What have you taken already? What are your, you know, and you guys know this better than I. And, and my advisor across the table from me went, yeah, I don't know if business is really for you. So I think maybe you might want to not get a BA in business administration. <laughs> Anywho. So anyway, what do they know? So um, here's what I would say about that was I am not a read learner. Mm. I am a listen visual learner. And I was in college in the 80s. So we didn't have visual Right. It was read, it was lecture, it was take test, it was show back up. It was, you know, <clears throat> awful at best, if you even showed up to class, right? You know, that's a whole other reason why I wasn't a great student, but <laughs> I digress. <laughs> like, okay. But once the, you know, and then I sort of got into the working world and for me to find out information about what was going on was very similar to school. Like pick up the newspaper, pick up a magazine, pick up a book, you know, have it there. And then you would sort of go, okay, now I've done my, you know, read newspaper and magazine, you know, research. Okay. Now I'm ready to go talk to somebody. What has changed is the ability for people to consume content in multiple channels now, which, you know, for, for educators, if you're listening, like you're going to have students like me where I did not do well in school, but I'm super whip smart when you give it to me in a way that I'm totally engaged, I can tell you exactly what you just shared with me. If you wrote it down and told me to read it and asked me, I, it would be less because I, I probably wouldn't be retaining because I wouldn't be fo as focused. So I would say once that started to change for me, my ability to be more curious and to learn more and, and all of those things became easier for me. And so that's why I actually mix my, my channels as well. Like I do voice, I do a LinkedIn live, which is, you know, video, which then turns into voice. So someone may not want to watch, they want to listen. I did in my book, I didn't just write words. I then did sketch notes and I underlined. And at the end of the chapter, I go key takeaways because I'm not going to make the assumption because I don't, I'm not going to read every chapter, but uh, my eye will go to the underlines 
And then if I don't really, if I'm not that interested, I'll read the key takeaways and move on. And so one of the number one things I heard back from people who read my book was they appreciated the format almost more than the content because they actually made it through the book Hmm. because it was something that they felt was an engaging flat medium, right? Although, you know, you weren't seeing video. And the thought was those underlines at some point, if they ever caught up in the Kindle, you could tweet right out of because they were tweet size. You know, I was thinking mm. ahead, but they're not there yet. But, you know, if if you just take everything you just asked me, right, the context of how we learn, where we learn, why we learn in, you know, in real time now, if you think about Salesforce, like within our CRM tool, if you're stuck on something, literally there's just-in-time training pops up and gives you a 30-second coaching on what to do in the next stage. Like, trust me, that was not here 20 years ago when I was selling using an Excel spreadsheet. Right, five years ago. So, so I would say everything has changed because of technology. But then you also have the bad information, the bad data, the bad insights. Like then you can put people down researching down the wrong hole. You know, right? They're kind of running down that the wrong path. And it's not that the information is wrong. It's just it's it's probably a a view that is not going to be um, helpful in the grand scheme of things unless you are really going for a niche. I really that like answer. that because I mean, hopefully that. No, I, yeah. I think that I mean, and and this is what we're seeing, and I think that's one of the things we're we're constantly stressing, right? Is that there are multiple different ways to access information. There's multiple different ways to get information in front of learners. How are we making sure we're giving the choice? And that's what I hear you saying, right? Like learning these days needs to be about choice, just in time, and the choice to read, skim, listen, watch. It's all there. But it's how, how do we create these choices? But it's hard for educators, right? I mean, you've got a textbook. What are you going to do? Like, you've got a textbook. What, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, are you going to yeah. go home and record the whole textbook so that someone can listen to it in Audible? You know, are you going to, you know, do video vignettes of each chapter for your... I mean, that's a lot of work for an educator, right? So the point is, is that for those of you who have the ability to, you know, help your educators be more cross-functional than it is, do we want to do a little TED-style talk 10 minute snippet of, you know, instead of cliff notes that we had in the little 25 page pamphlet, right. right. Do the cliff note in a 10 minute video for people who learn. So like a friend of mine's son has um, ADHD. And so he was medicated through school. He got really frustrated. Like he wasn't a good student and, you know, always told like, you got to go to special this and special that, and, you know, all of those things. And I always felt badly for him. Like, you know, I wasn't diagnosed with it, but my focus was just not there. I wasn't interested. I wasn't engaged. And so the fact I even got C's was miraculous, but you know, it, it now he's taking cooking classes and he's like nailing it, <laughs> right? It's a show me, tell me, let me see it. The it's, 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 it's stimulating all his senses, not just read, you know, he he's focused because it's fun. All, he's killing it. Right. Hmm. So it's not that he wasn't a good student. It's that it, it's just, that's not how he learned. And so cooking classes, clearly how he learned. So whatever he wanted to decide to do, that would have to be the way he learned. Right. You know, so if you're going to be yeah. a tradesman or a painter or a contractor that he right. needs to learn that way versus reading it in a book. And I think that's the thing that makes kids and people unique is their communication styles are different their interests are different. And so as a leader, as a coach, you also have to know how your student or how your colleagues, how they learn, because then you may have to adjust how you communicate to them. Because if you're just talking at them, that might might not be how they learn, right? So it could be, I'm going to have you do an exercise, go watch these three videos or do this or do that and come back. And that's the way, you know, they will learn it versus sitting there and telling them what they need to do. So getting creative doesn't mean you have to create the content. It means you'd have to find the content and give them the ability and give them the options that that's the way to learn. Yeah. I love that. Cause I think, you know, to your point, there's a lot of content out there and, and teachers. Yeah. It's a lot to try to remake your entire textbook, but yeah. if you can go find the Ted talk, you know, there's a Ted talk on the revolutionary war. You can use that as part of your you know, part of your text, if you will, or part of your course, uh, for those students that would rather go watch a TED Talk video than it than they would read read the chapter. Um, yeah, and I, and or you know, watch this TED Talk, this video, this documentary that have three very different views about the Revolutionary War, and then come up with your own opinion. 
I mean, God, yeah. like what an idea. Let them come yeah. up with their Shocker. own opinion about <laughs> what they think. I love that. Uh, for, for young entrepreneurs or teachers of entrepreneurship, we've got a lot of entrepreneurship programs that have really started in the last five, six years, especially in K-12 education. As they look to brands and businesses, can you offer a few maybe questions for inspiring entrepreneurs? I'm thinking of like this high school kid who's got an idea and, and they're just trying to figure out how to get started. We've, we see this a lot in schools that I work with. I have conversations with these kids. It's like, I got this idea. How, what, what are some, what's some advice that you have about young entrepreneurs uh, who might be ready to start a business or even teachers of those entrepreneurs of like, what questions should we be asking them? How should we be pushing in 2022 and beyond? What are the conversations we should be having with, with entrepreneurs and young entrepreneurs at heart? So uh, in full transparency, again, I'm going to answer it this way. I wish I knew because mm. I am not an entrepreneur. Hey folks, just a quick word from our show sponsor. We're excited to welcome Libsyn as a sponsor of the Shifting Our Schools podcast. We talk a lot about the power of podcasting and the different ways you can use podcasts with students, with colleagues, and with your larger school community. The biggest hurdle to overcome is finding a place to host your MP3 file, aka your podcast file. That's why we're excited to have Libsyn be a sponsor of the podcast. Our podcast has been on Libsyn for four years and we love it. Libsyn has everything you need to plan, launch, and grow your own podcast. Libsyn provides some of the best resources created by expert podcasters who will show you everything you need to know, like what equipment you should use, how to record great audio, how to get your show onto Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular platforms, and much more. Plus, as a friend of Shifting Our Schools, when you sign up with Libsyn, you get your first month of podcast hosting for free. Summer is a great time to start dabbling with new technologies. And if you are thinking of starting a podcast this school year, you can now get started for free. There has never been a better time than right now for you to start podcasting. Visit Libsyn.com and use the code FRIEND. That's F-R-I-E-N-D. That's Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com and use the code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D to get started and create your podcast today. For more details, please see the show notes. Thank you, Libsyn, for being a sponsor of this episode. And now back to the show. So I used to like, it, this was this push and pull within myself of, I used to have people all the time go, why don't you just break out on your own? Why don't you go, you know, do things like, you know, a Dory Clark, like, you know, teach somewhere, a professor at some college in business, which I think is ironic all the way around considering <laughs> I wasn't going to do anything in business, but I digress. Um, uh, you know, do something like that and then have a coaching business or an advisory business on my own. And I used to really beat myself up. Like, why can't I, what's the, and then over a bottle of wine or two, maybe with a very good friend of mine in Australia, she's on Shark Tank, Australia, Naomi Simpson. Obviously she's an amazing entrepreneur. We were into our second bottle and she like just point blank said, why will you not do this? We've known each other a long time. And I finally gave myself permission to say, I am not an entrepreneur. Like, mm -hmm. I just don't have that risk quotient. Like, it's just, I like the security of you know, working somewhere and having all the benefit of working somewhere. And, you know, that's just, that's where I find my, you know, my space where I can be successful. So for me to advise entrepreneurs, it's always this dance, right? Because I don't know what it's like to wear nine hats and be responsible for the employees' payroll and customer satisfaction and all the things I just toss out like, yeah, go do that. Is it? Go ahead. It's on one slide. It can't possibly be that difficult, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but I would say this when it comes to entrepreneurship is I think if you've got the ability to inspire the next generation of those that are going to go out and make a difference in this world, I am all for it. You know, mm. any chance I get to speak at a school, I've spoken at the UN a number of times to uh, at an event called uh, Girls 2030. Um, and every time I walk out of there, I'm like, wow, you know, if I could be half of some of these 13 year olds and 14 year olds and 15 year olds that are going to change the world, like it would be amazing. But if I can play some part and piece into that development, then I feel like I've contributed a little bit to it. 
Um, but for those that have put out entrepreneur programs, I took one at USC, Marshall School of Business, many, many, many years ago. Um, I took a leadership course and I took an entrepreneur course. And I took the entrepreneur course not to become an entrepreneur, but to understand what it might be like to be an entrepreneur if I was going to start to like sell to them. So it was more of a learning for me to understand what do they have to do and what are their pains and you know, how can I help fix them? Um, but but I would say that it's overwhelming right now. And I, just in my little world of technology, like that is an overwhelming thing to even imagine. Interestingly mm. enough, my friend group, my very closest friends, every single one of them is an entrepreneur. Mm. Every single one of them. Like none of them work for a company. I'm the only one that works somewhere. Everyone else works for themselves. So interesting, right? That that's who I decided to kind of make my inner circle. Um, and I watch the struggles they go through and I hear the challenges with keeping talent, keeping people, investing in technology, making the wrong decisions, making bad partnerships. Um, so there's a, there's a great um, thinker, Alex Osterwalder, who wrote a book, uh, Business Model Canvas, which is probably my best piece of advice for anybody who is advising entrepreneurs is he has a really great way of explaining all the pieces and parts that go into that. And what are the things that you need to do in each of those sections to try to help people not be so overwhelmed with it's an aircraft carrier. I don't even know where to begin to make repairs, right? Or build it depends where you are in your entrepreneurial right. journey. Right. And it's sort of breaking it up into small pieces um, helps the entrepreneur. And I think that's one of those superpowers I uncovered is being able to deconstruct into pieces and parts that then, you know, you can go and try to improve upon uh, versus trying to do everything at one time. Do you think we're entering an age like you, like you said, your, your closest friends are all entrepreneurs. Do you see this as something as we continue to move forward? Are we going to see more entrepreneurs, more of this side hustle, more that people wanting to work for themselves, not wanting to work for business? Is, is this a future yeah, of our know, economy? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think definitely what we've just seen over the last couple of years is people, I didn't call it the great resignation. I actually called it the great reflection. I think people were reflecting, mm. do I want to go back to school? Is this what I want to keep doing? Am I, I finding agree. meaning and joy in life? Right. All that, I think it was a reflection versus I'm resigning and, you know, the great resignation of I'm just hitting eject. I don't think yeah. it was, I'm hitting eject. It's I'm hitting eject from this. Right. <laughs> I'm moving on, right? To something where I don't want to hit eject. And and in some cases, in a good number, if you look at the stats, there was a significant number of new businesses, entrepreneurs that stood up during that time as well. Like I, you know, I've always wanted to do this. Why not do it now? Right. And and so, but I would also say that that's that's a lesson into the curriculums that get set. Should we be doing more entrepreneurial kinds of classes? For kids in the high school age that may not go to college, but giving them the tools to understand how to even start their own business. Okay. Two, you know, even managing money, what that even means. I mean, I yeah. didn't learn how to manage money in high school, like, you know, for sure, because I totally screwed up in college. Um, and then it took me, you know, till my thirties to clean that up. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, are we teaching people the skills needed to make that decision without going out and really being really destructive to their, you know, a decade, if not more of their future, because they've gotten them into themselves into such trouble in that first initial step. So does, is the answer, if that's what we think, because I would agree with you that I do think that that is a, then what's the difference in the curriculum? Mm. Like what, what would have to happen in the curriculum? It might not be in the main curriculum, but it could be extra credit curriculum. Sure. It could be weekend curriculum, after school curriculum, summer school curriculum. You know, it doesn't have to be part yeah. of the core, but, but are there things that you could do there? Because maybe college isn't for them, but if their parents then see that they're totally interested in starting their own business or what, that they're more supportive of, well, I don't want you not going to college and, you know, sleeping on my couch, but right. if you're, not going to college and you're sleeping on my couch because you're starting your own business. And if you listen to all the entrepreneurs that have made it to, you know, star status, what do they all have in common? Oh, I was 11 and I was like selling, you know, car parts out of my dad's garage. Cause you know, and, <laughs> and I was doing this with my mom and I was doing this with my you know neighbor and I saw that this was broken. And so I went and started this and I stood up my own, my lemonade stand turned into a food truck and, you know, they usually are those kids. 
And so imagine if there was a place and a way, you know, there were generations where there used to be trade schools. We don't really have that anymore. And so, you know, what is the way to capture that kind of, because we know, you know, we know that the classic educational process and system needs work knowing where we are today. 100% 100% uh, couldn't couldn't yeah. agree with you more. That's sort of the, the big theme of this podcast. Uh, Tiffany, we sort of come full circle in our last question here. You know, you were talking about the important education that you had as an athlete um, and everything that you learn from what does it mean to be a part of a team? You've written a lot about employee experience, and I'm pretty sure this is more or less a direct quote from you where you wrote something like, happy employees make happy customers. Um, I think it's Southwest and Lamborghini that you've talked about specifically in making sure that that employee experience is rich. That's going to translate over into growth for an organization, for a corporation or a business. Um, I'm wondering if we might end there with you talking again about how important that is that if we are leading a team, uh, if we are leading a group of employees, what does it mean to make sure that we're prioritizing what their employee experience is all about? Yeah, in, in this case, um, I'm just going to sort of, I, we did, I did two years of research on this whole concept of what are the drivers from a great employee experience that lend themselves to a great customer experience that then lend themselves to growth? And so if I, if I, go, if I go back to well, we were just talking about leadership and coaching, et cetera, or even teaching. Um, overwhelmingly, uh, I'm going to take tech off the table because it doesn't really fit the answer, although it was a big component in this, but I'm going to skip past that one. But one which I think has a lot of value uh, for this, this podcast specifically would be asking, but listening, and then actioning and feedback, like recognition recognizing who I am, the value I bring, but then recognizing my ideas when I have them, creating an environment of a safe space where is there a time where only four or five students raise their hands always, and they're always the one talking in the class. How do you get everyone else to be engaged? We have to create that psychological safety. And so it's a, I want to work for a place, right? Where I feel like I'm valued, I'm seen, I can bring my whole self, kind of all that soft stuff. But it has a lot to do with that feedback of if I think there's a better way to do it, like, hi, you know, Miss Andrews, I have an idea of how to do the class on the revolution. Like, let's go look at three videos and then we all have to come up with our own thing that the teacher doesn't go like, yeah, okay, whatever, Tiffany. Like, I didn't ask for your opinion and or however they're going to say it. They probably wouldn't say that, but you get my point. They might say that, who knows, but no, right? And sort of move on. And so- You want, because what you teach someone in their formative years about when they raise their hand will follow them for the rest of their lives. And they Mm -hmm. will not raise their hand in a meeting. They will not put their hand up for a job, a promotion, a project, because they will feel like I'm not heard. I'm not seen. I'm not listened to sort of from a feedback. So the employee in this case could be a patient, could be a student, could be, you know, a teacher could be, I mean, right replace the word customer or employee, I'm sorry, with all of those terms. And it's important to a human, regardless of what persona they may have on them. If they don't feel like they're heard at work, they won't feel like they're heard at home. If they don't feel like they're heard, you know, on, uh, in a, in a classroom, they're going to feel like they're not heard in a team meeting if it, you know, et cetera. Right. So um, I do think that the great resignation in many ways was the manifestation of this lack of paying attention to what employees actually wanted at work all day, (laughs) what their why was, what their purpose was, what was important to them. It was not just a paycheck clearly as has been seen. (laughs) Right. You know, so that's, that's what I'd say there. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of that to bring this, you know, full circle to education. I mean, you've probably, I don't know, you've probably seen the articles, like we're looking at a, a, big turning point in education where we are already down 600,000 teachers across the United States. We're looking at here in Seattle public schools, where I happen to be an article just came out that over a third of teachers are thinking that they're going to be out of the profession in the next three years. And it's not because of the pay. I mean, here in Seattle, teachers get paid pretty good. Like we're like 
around the around the nation, we get paid pretty good here in the state of Washington. And so it's not about the pay. There's something else going on in education that people aren't feeling heard. They're not feeling appreciated. And, and not we've got safe. to, they're not feeling safe. Like there's a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things I think that are, that are, are playing into this, that the, the system of education, I don't know if they're listening to people raising their hands saying like, it's not about like, it's a little bit about the pay, but it's really a lot about this, you know, but it is around the, you know, listen, you know, I I have a personal connection to the story. My mom was a teacher for 30 years. Um, She didn't teach me clearly because I wasn't a good student and I did not go to school where she taught. So, you know, just (laughs) uh, that's why when I, my great report card would come home, she would just roll her eyes. But uh, um, I would say that, Teachers are having to pick up so much of the slack on what is not being supported around them that it's exhausting. Like, yeah. it's just exhausting. Like, why am I spending after hours because I can't get funding for this? Why am I spending my own money to help? To, you know what I mean? Like, there's a right. lot of that. And and you do not go into teaching outside of anything that y- your nature is to be of service and to give. Um, and, and so you, you're looking for whom you work for to also be in service and to give to you that it's not... And all in the aspect of students. Now, I'm hopeful that everything that's just happened in work will start, you know, in sort of the future of work, will start to permeate in the, we're not going to think about work the same way. It doesn't mean we go into an office. You don't have to do this. The gig economy, like you can live elsewhere, teams, you know, will that now translate to education? And I think of all the conversations we've had, especially in the last year or two around education has not been around this, right? (laughs) Right? It's been all the things we're going to try to tighten up around things that in the whole grand scheme of things, like isn't helping the education of those that are getting educated, right? It's going back to the, I'm going to teach them in one textbook and it's going to be this way versus let me, let me allow them to form their own opinions about what they think uh, is going on here or has happened in the past. Um, So, you know, I, I think ultimately um, I'm hopeful and I feel the same way about healthcare. I think healthcare, I think education, I think work, healthcare and education specifically are two that really could use a little 21st century thinking. Yeah. That's a great way to end this podcast. Cause that's what we're all about. And I think we're seeing that, you know, to, to just, to put a little bow on what you just said here in the greater Seattle area, we are a very tech heavy sector. We are not seeing people return to the office. Like there's all kinds of articles coming out, like people, they're just not coming back to the offices here, which is having a direct impact on our public school system in that, and I'll just take some of the tech companies here in downtown Seattle are optioning. People can come to work and right now it's either two or three days a week. Most people are deciding to come to work, say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So they're having these you know, a weekend plus a a light Friday and a a work from home Friday and a work from home Monday. What we're also seeing in schools then is we're seeing attendance drop off on Mondays and Fridays. So what does that mean for education when I only get my kids in class three days a week and I still am required to do something different on Mondays and Fridays because the parents are going to have the kids learn from home that day? Like we have to rethink what it means to educate when your students can learn from anywhere, anytime. And the problem is, is we now have a, a community or we have a, you know, a public that is like, hey, you know how to do this online learning thing now because you just did it for two years. Let's take apart that it was a pandemic and it was an emergency situation and we were all flying by the seat of our pants. There's a, there's, there's a mindset out there of like, well, I can just pull my kid on Friday because they'll just learn online because you all know how to do that now. And I think it's, it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on the educational system really fast to think differently about what does education look like in the 21st century? Um, I agree a thousand percent, but I also want to make sure that we don't leave behind those that aren't in the same situation to do that. I mean, I'll just, I'll just talk about when I first, like I'm in Los Angeles um, and, uh, it was, you know, the first month of the pandemic and everything was still totally shut down. Like there wasn't right. sort of emergency open at the moment, right? Everything was still shut outside of kind of pharmacies, those, those kinds of things. And I was pulling into my parking lot for my CVS, you know, sort of my Rite Aid 
pharmacy and the parking lot was full in front of the Starbucks. And I was very confused. I didn't understand. Like, I don't understand. Starbucks is definitely closed. And the cars were packed with people sniffing the free Wi-Fi from Starbucks. Yeah. And so, and because they were educating their kids, they were working. So while I, you know, the one huge caveat here is, is as you move across this country, there is still like, if you look at Detroit, I think 33% of people in Detroit do not have high speed into their home. So you can't just naturally push to, and you know, Seattle's a great example. There's a huge gap between have and have nots. In your 100%. State. So you, you, you have to be careful that we can't say, make these blanket decisions unless we figure out ways in which, you know, the, the big companies like the Amazons or the Tableaus or the Microsofts that sit in your downtown, um, you know, are going to be able to find ways to donate technology out to level the playing field so that if people are going to educate from home, everyone has that opportunity. Otherwise, Mondays and Fridays, the students aren't doing anything. Right. Right. Because the parent is working three jobs. Exactly. You know, so, you know, I, I think this is the danger in it. We cannot yeah. make sweeping assumptions about future of work. We cannot make future, uh, sweeping assumptions about future of education or healthcare because not everybody has everything we all, you know, think everyone has. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, but, but I would say that um, that is a great example of, um, well, what if the, not every kid wants to be out Monday, Friday. And so then you say, we're going to just put a camera in the back of the room. And if that's not very appealing to you, come to school, right? But you're not going to get a pass until it gets a little more mature, right? But right. it's either really rudimentary kind of dial up sort of feeling. Yeah. Or it's going to be highly produced. It's digital. You know, it's collaborative. It's using whiteboards on the screen. Everybody has the same technology. Like then that's different. But until that happens, I think it's a dangerous and slippery slope because we will begin to leave more and more behind who are already naturally being left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 100%. then you have the, if not going to school, they're not eating. I mean, then it's a yeah, exactly. conversation, you know? So it's <laughs> yep. like, you know, it, it, it's not a simple fix, but these are the yeah. right conversations to have. And I think that um, as educators, you know, you are the keepers of, of the next generation of those that are going to do amazing things in this world. So we have to, we have to treat it with care. I I love that. And, you know, again, that's kind of a a great note for us to end on, because I think appreciating that there's not a simple fix means being curious about the nuances, curious about the variety of experiences. And it's so wonderful, again, to hear from someone who has given over 500 keynotes, (laughs) whose message is listen deeply, listen closer. I really appreciate that, Tiffany. Thank you so much. Well, thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure, Trisha. It was a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.